You're listening to Mental Work. I'm your host, Bronwyn, an early career psychologist based in Australia. And this is the podcast taking a closer look at the challenges faced by early career mental health professionals so they don't have to go it alone. Hello and welcome back to Mental Work. Today I am sharing the microphone with Nicole Withers. She's a clinical psychologist in Melbourne and we're going to talk to you about what early career mental health professionals need to know about working in group private practice. The first thing I'll do is I'll ask Nicole to introduce herself so we know why are we talking to Nicole. So Nicole, could you just tell the listener just a wee bit about yourself? Sure. Thanks, Bronwyn. Hi, everybody. I'm Nicole Withers, clinical psychologist and director of Wellness of the Lane Psychology in Werribee in Melbourne, Victoria. Um, I've been a clinical psychologist for a great number of years now, and now I'm also a board-approved supervisor. So I have, I suppose, a experience that goes from being myself at one stage an early career psychologist and now also supervising those joining my practice. So you own your group practice, is that correct? I do own my group practice, yes. So myself and my business partner, Melissa, have a practice in Werribee. Yeah. That's fantastic. And it sounds like you have a wide range of folk in your team. So not only, I saw on your website that you not only have psychologists, but you have different mental health professionals as well. Is that right? Yes. So we have provisional psychologists, social workers, mental health occupational therapists, psychiatrists, general and clinical psychologists. That is really cool. And even as you say that, Immediately in my head, I'm like, oh, well, I want to hear why Nicole decided to have a multidisciplinary practice. There's just so many questions to ask about group practice. And just for the listener, so Nicole responded to my call out for people who own a group private practice to come talk to us about what we need to know. And the reason why I made that call out was because being an early career psychologist myself, I went from being in my government-based role to being like, okay, what is the private sector? What does that actually look like? How do I get into it? And it just seemed really overwhelming and terrifying. As well, there were just so many other worries that came up. So I figure if I can get somebody who's experienced, like Nicole, to come on and actually address some of these fears and concerns and explain to us what the deal is, then hopefully the listener, you, can feel more supported in actually going into this yourself. So thank you, Nicole. No problems. I also started in public service and had worked in management roles there before as well as um, clinical leadership. And I think that having a a combination of both private and public sector service um, gives you a really unique establishment of of your career and it gives you a lot of opportunity, a lot of experience, and it makes us better clinicians in the long run. Totally. I would agree with that. Just from my early career, I feel kind of inadequate saying that, but it's like, from what I've seen so far, yes, I agree in theory. Yes. Yeah. And I think that's why we went with the multidisciplinary team as well, um, because I've seen what really works well in the private se- public sector. And we've been able to move it across to the private sector really seamlessly and get a really positive experience for our clients who are accessing our service, which are the most important part of our, our role as psychologists. Absolutely. That is really cool. Um, And for myself, I worked in a private hospital for four years as well, whilst I was gaining my registration and working in a multidisciplinary team was probably my favorite aspect of that. So I think it's just really cool that you have brought that over from the public to the private as well. So just to flag kind of some of the things we'll be talking about in this episode, when I was off mic with Nicole before this, immediately she asked me a question like, what kind of thing are we talking about? And I was like, this is way over my head. So one of the first things that I would really love to talk about would be 
the different kind of ways that you can enter private practice. And then one of the other really important things that we'll probably cover is isolation and the idea that it should be a reciprocal arrangement between you and practice owners and also employment fit. So there'll be hopefully a few other bits and bobs, but maybe we can just start at the start and well, what are some of the ways that you can actually enter the private workforce? Sure. Yeah. There's a number of ways as we spoke about before. Yeah. So a lot of early career psychologists are coming into joining practices and I suppose largely it depends on where you're at in your career progression. So provisional psychologists often taking on internships or sometimes even placement opportunities whilst finishing master's courses. Um, And so uh, joining a a group practice will give you, I suppose, some opportunities for different types of supervision and different exposures, which you otherwise wouldn't have, which will come back to no doubt with regards to the to the um, isolation component. Um, but once you've finished your provisional com- aspect of your of your career and you have become a generally registered psychologist, one, congratulations. And two, now you have so many options. Now what do we do with it? Um, so from a, a private practice point of view, um, you can join a practice as a contractor. So as someone who's independently employed with your own ABN or your own business name, whether it's your name or another, it is up to you entirely. And you can work with a contractor split. So um, receiving a percentage of, of client intake of money that the business keeps. So the business has, of course, overheads obligations, costs that are associated. And so that's a negotiation that you have with the practice owner about what you think is a reasonable split for your time, whilst also covering from a business point of view, a business model that's that's successful. And I mean, just on that as well, Nicole, it was one of the things that shocked me from going from public to private was that I did not realize how much was being covered by the private sector. I, it's almost like really, I almost feel a bit embarrassed about it because it's just like I'd have an admin every day that I could talk to and would talk about appointments and cancellations and stuff. And then in private, of course, you're managing that yourself if you don't have an admin. And I'm just like, wow, she actually did so much. And I was so ignorant of how much that cost is um, to actually keep a salaried person and how much work they do. Yeah, that was really shocking. I wonder when early career psychs are kind of navigating maybe that salary negotiation or that contract split, whether they need to be made more aware of the overheads that private practices do have? I think that that comes to transparency from the business owner themselves. And when when you're having those negotiations, being really really realistic with um, what you're needing from early career psychs joining your firm. Um, So whilst every split is negotiable, um, it's also really important to be realistic in what they can and can't accept. You know, having a fantastic administration team is worth its weight in gold. Um, they, their role is to fill your day, manage your cancellations, do your billing, deal with people who haven't paid, sort out cancellations, fix everything basically. And it makes it so much more doable for you to have a successful business. When you have someone who does all the behind the scenes things, your job early career psychologist is to do the therapy, to do the assessments, to do that engagement with the clients. And then to add on top of that, a liaison with Medicare or figuring out why this error code has come up is a whole nother set of things that you were never trained for and to just take so much time. I will be jumping in because it's just I'm really excited to kind of have you. But we had number one thing that you can do is contracting. So can you take us through, I think there are three main ways. 
Yep. So contracting with a with a percentage split is one way. The second way, as again, as a sole provider, similarly to contracting with a split, is to have a set fee that some practices will have. So they'll have what we call sessions, typically, which are three or four hour blocks of time where you rent a room or rent space, um, whether that space is electronic or whether e-systems or telehealth these days, or whether it's in an actual practical room. And they'll have a set fee for that amount of time, which includes things like your electricity, your admin time, your access to the referral pool, and your access to clinicians for support. Um, And instead of having a percentage split, I suppose that's a set fee so that if you're, say, for example, doing assessments, which are less time consuming and more costly, then your your percentage splits will end up being quite a bit higher in outgoings for you as an individual business than it would if you were doing a, a flat fee room rental agreement. The third way uh, that you can join a private practice is through a salaried position through clinical registrar programs or internships or just set fees, which will have your tax, your super, all those things all paid. So as opposed to the original two options, the third will have kind of all that tax stuff finished. And I suppose take away some of the anxieties about what happens if my clients don't show up or what happens if I don't get enough referrals. There is enough work, but people will still have that initial anxiety as a new provider or frankly, a very experienced provider striking out on something new. Yeah, absolutely. I remember that when I started my practice last year and I was counting referral by referral. I'm like, woohoo, I've got eight people um, and now I've got too many referrals. So with those three things, the question that immediately comes to my mind is I'm like, one, what is the best arrangement for the practice owner? And then two, what do you think is the best arrangement for the early career professional? And then I'm interested if they are in, if they contrast. Yes, they probably do contrast. Um, um, My practice is a little bit different. We do a set fee for time um, arrangement with our clinicians. And we do that because my practice has a very different business model structure. Um, If you're doing percentage splits, then there's largely an element of burnout, which for early career sites, we worry about. um, And also the amount of work that people will kind of push themselves to do, um, and sometimes working beyond scope. So from a business owner perspective, splits are much more lucrative, so probably better business decisions, but we'll also see a higher turnover of staff and will or or contractors um and we'll see also um burnout and need a little bit more supervision i suppose of what's going on in the rooms so we choose to do a flat fee for service which is a less lucrative business option but um, we feel that it provides a little bit more loyalty from our staff and we have not really had anyone leave the practice so we're feeling really positive about that so far. I mean, I'm really pleased with you. I'm glad that it's working out for you. It really sounds like it's the, uh, I guess, sustainable model. It's sustainable both for the practitioner in terms of burnout and I guess ensuring that they stay within their scope because early career mental health professionals, we might be tempted to go outside our scope, but mostly we just feel terrifying anxiety about being outside our scope. So it's nice to kind of stay in that scope of practice. And then it sounds like it's more sustainable for you in the long run, because then you don't have the turnover. And of course, I guess, finding staff would cost money in itself, right? Finding contractors or staff costs money, but yes. 
both. Um, I think from a business perspective, salary positions are also usually typically a little bit less lucrative um, from a from a business ownership point of view, um, just because there's things that you have to take into consideration is that it costs about 25% more than an hourly rate to have an employed staff member because of annual leave and um, tax uh, stuff. And as a consequence, um, you have to be very aware of what you're charging clients and have a really good admin team to manage cancellations and do not attend clients so that that's covered for the business, which in the contractor point of view, um, arrangements is not something that business owners really worry as much about unless they have appropriate ethics and try really hard for their people. Um, because if someone doesn't show up, that's, I suppose, less onus on the business. Yeah. Okay, cool. From like, I guess if I kind of put myself in the shoes of an early career professional, which I am, but I haven't been in group practice, but I guess the things that come to my mind that I would be looking for would be one, I want to be supported. Two, I don't want to burn out. Um, three, I guess I want to be uh, pay my bills and also support my, my living um, expenses. And no, I, I guess more support again. Um, so I want to be supported, I guess, um, from not burning out, but also maybe in terms of like uh, career development as well. Like I don't expect, I wouldn't expect kind of my employer to do all of that, but I would like some of that. Um, so I guess like when you hear those things from me, are they common things that early career I professionals think they want? should be. And, you know, when you say you can't have all those things, I suppose my question, Bronwyn, is why not? Because there's a lot of group practices out there that, and we all, we all need team. We all need staff. So there's kind of the incentive should be on the practices to say, well, this is what we can do for you. Because you know, as a business owner, my job is to develop businesses that work with me and to develop people who work with me to be very, very, very good clinicians because it's my business that I suppose is being, um, it is getting the reflection of what the individual is doing. So the individual clinician is doing hopefully amazing work with that person so that that person can go off and say, well, I had this fabulous psychologist and she's super amazing or he shoots super amazing and they work here. And then my business flourishes because of the, that individual clinician. So it's it's my benefit that everybody who works for me and with me is the best that they can be. So development is super important. Support is super important. Maybe early career professionals need to know that it's in the practice owner's best interest to make sure that you are supported. Would that be right? Absolutely. Yeah. Because like, I guess maybe, I don't know if it's, the fear that I'm feeling is common, but I'm worried that they won't look after me. Yeah. And I mean, we all hear that there are some stories of things that have happened with business is out there. And, and I think the one thing about it is we have to talk about fit. You know, it is really important that wherever you go, whoever you join, that you feel really comfortable and confident that they have the same values as you, that they have the same model as you, and that they're doing the right type of work that you want to do. If you inherently disagree with something that they're doing, or you inherently disagree with something about their fee structure or their ethical background or their mode of therapy, then it's probably really not a good place for you to work. So what if I get into something? Because actually my previous question was going to be like, which of those three models are good, but then it's changed to maybe those like 
going between one, two, and three, like those three options you outlined, maybe it doesn't matter if the fit is really good. Would you agree? Yeah, I would absolutely agree. I think that there are benefits to each and every one of the option, and it really depends on what you want to do. And again, it comes back to so many options. How do I choose? And I guess it's about really trying it on, meet with practices and speak with the owners and do the tour. You might really hate the room in the end. So it's really about choosing what works for what you want to do and what feels right for you. And you can always change like this, your early career psychs, it's unlikely to be your last job either. So it's about choosing what you want to do and growing into the practitioner that you want to be. So what if I don't like it? What if I get into like your practice, any practice, and I see something that just doesn't sit right with me? Can I leave? What are the consequences? You absolutely can leave. Um, the advice that I have in regards to that is read your contract. So every every practice is going to be a little bit different. And every, um, every practitioner, whether it's a salary position, whether it's a contracting position, there's a contract. So for example, when people worry about, well, what do I do with my 25 clients? If I want to leave, what, what happens to them? And there are a lot of different answers to that question. At my practice, for example, we say, you know what, if you've established a really positive therapeutic relationship with that client, it's in that client's best interest that if you're going to set up practice three doors away, that you go with them. Like it makes total sense for us from an ethical point of view that you should continue doing really great work for your clients that you're doing really great work with. Other practices don't have that same agreement and they'll have, um, things built into their contracts to say that clients stay with the practice or that you're not allowed to disclose where you're going. And my answer to that is always, well, clients do get rights and clients do get to choose. And whilst you might not be able to tell a patient where you're going and, you know, absolutely don't breach a contract because there's ramifications for that. There's this magical thing called Google (laughs) and clients will find you. You know, if you have a really positive relationship, they'll find you. Yeah, absolutely. It's very true. And I guess just on that as well, it's like, I remember when I first entered um, maybe my government-based role and the year before, like I'd done, I was studying my uh, fifth year master's and of course you do an ethics unit and you've got it drilled into, you're pretty much memorizing the APS code of ethics. And so when you actually get into the workforce and you kind of see that um, disparity, it's just at the front of your mind, like ethics, ethics, ethics. And we were taught in ethics that it's like in terms of priority, it's we have a duty to the client, the public, the profession, and then you, the practitioner, you kind of come last in the equation in terms of prioritizing safety and stuff. So then when you see a practice owner prioritizing business, then it really, I think it jars with a lot of early career professionals. And I think it's because, um, you know, when you're meeting with a practice, when you're first starting out, that's probably one of the questions. If this is something that you're passionate about, you absolutely need to ask. And the business owners, you know, they should have an answer for that. And at the very beginning, if somebody meets with me, then we say, establish, go, yes. You know, our job is to create wonderful, successful practitioners who then eventually, of course, they'll leave us. And there's no problem with that. That is really good to know. I'm feeling very reassured and hopefully the listener is too right now. I feel like, you know, weight's been lifted just knowing this stuff. Um, One of the things I kind of wanted to sidestep to was this idea of isolation, if that's okay. Um, So I just kind of share my experience. I mean, 
it's just so isolating being in private practice. Even if you are in a group private practice, it's like you are still the only one in the room. And yeah, it just feels really lonely. What's your perspective on it? It can be really lonely. And I think that's one of the benefits of having really good supervision for one, (laughs) but also joining a group practice does kind of help with that. Um, And again, when you're meeting with practices, ask that question, what do you guys do to address isolation? Because even those that joined a group practice, particularly in the last couple of years with COVID, you know, there's the telehealth component, there's everyone to work from home, it's the masks, it's really hard out there right now. And I think that um, one of the things that we need to do as business owners is be really innovative around how we address that for our team, whether our team is an early career psych or whether it's someone with 30 years experience. Everybody's feeling the pinch right now and the burnout is real and the isolation is hard. So some of the things, for example, that we do and have done um, is we've had pizza and PD nights. So we had Uber Eats sent to everybody's houses and everybody got on Zoom and we had a wonderful experience of watching webinars together and making inappropriate statements throughout the webinar. Um, We've done video and movie nights as well um, in that way. We also do, for example, our lunch break. Everyone in the clinic has a lunch break together between 1 and 2 p.m. And they can choose to spend time talking. They can leave their door open and have people waltz in and out. We can all meet in the lunchroom or they can work. That's entirely up to them. But it gives everyone in the practice an opportunity to talk to each other. So would that be reasonable for like an early career psych to ask like a practice owner when they're meeting with them? So like, how do you take care of your staff? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Wherever you're going, you know, it's whether you're going to set up shop on your couch um, and do telehealth or whether you're going to join a practice and go in every day, isolation is real and the work is really hard. So wherever we are, we have to engage in the principles of self-care that we talk to our patients about all the time. And how are we going to deal with that? What about the vicarious trauma? What happens when we're stuck or we just want somebody to give us some advice and your supervisor isn't there for another three weeks, you know, so it's about having support in and trusting the team that you're around to provide that support for you. I'm not on site every day, but I know every one of my team is able to do that for each other. Yeah. And I really like um, how you framed it before is like, we want to create really excellent clinicians. Like we want to support you to be the best clinicians because if you frame it like that, everything else falls into place. So even when I think of, I've heard, of course, like retention is important and making sure you're having a good relationship with your clients is that a marker of an excellent clinician. But I've heard some people having difficulty with, I guess, practice owners talking with them about retention. It's been kind of a negative conversation. But I feel like if you frame it from like, we're actually just trying to support you to become a better clinician, more effective, then that feels better to me. Does that make sense to you? Absolutely. We want people to excel at this. We want people to love it. Um, It's in our best interest that clinicians will stay with us and love the work that they're doing with us and feel supported and be really satisfied with their lives and their jobs. Every day they come in and we want the culture and the experience to be great for our clients as well as everyone who works in the clinic. Be there for eight, 10 hours a day. We want you to have a great chair. We want you to feel good and we want everybody to feel really invested and engaged in the process of being there. I love how like great chair is like like 
alongside like all those other things but it's so true <laughs> it's just like as soon as you said that I was like yeah my chair is the most expensive thing in my office um <laughs> yeah <laughs> except for space and the artwork but yes a great chair is necessary you sit in it a lot but also take breaks and stand up and walk around so you don't get fidgets yeah exactly the thing that I wanted to ask maybe another side step is actually like what would be red flags to you as a practice owner for when you are meeting an early career site? Oh, there are so many. No, just joking. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think that the ethics is really important. So we're also looking for the right fit for the practice. We want somebody who's going to be reasonable with their work, who's going to be clinically responsible and sound because we also, you know, need that for our patients. Despite early career psychs being responsible for their own clinical practice, it reflects on the business. And this business is for most practice owners, something that they've put blood, sweat and tears into for many years. It's necessary that whoever works there is going to be the right person for the clients who are there, but also the team. So somebody who wants to be a part of the team, somebody who wants to adhere to the values of the clinic. So if your clinic, for example, everyone there um, will bulk bill single mom refugees. Okay then everybody in the clinic should do it. Like it's about being, I guess, together in how you're going to engage that and the message that you're kind of come across to the community. Um, So that's sort of something that we're looking for. We're looking for someone who cares, someone who's willing to commit and invest and engage. Ethical commitment, uh, shares values, willing to engage, I guess, maybe commitment to kind of uh, ongoing feedback and improvement. Yes. uh, Feedback and improvement is really important. And as I said, you know, most people will have supervision, whether it's on-site or external, Um, but also as a practice owner, we do check in around things that we see if there's problematic patterns establishing or complaints or, you know, we do have to have some of those hard conversations sometimes. Um, Retention, whilst client retention is largely not a reflection of the psychologist, it, it can be also. And so if we see that there's reasons for that, then we need to obviously have those difficult conversations. But difficult conversations are not things to avoid. It's how we go about doing that with respect and kindness and growth in mind that we can make them easier and better. So don't avoid conversations with the practice owners um, because they're there to, as I said, help you develop as a psychologist, but also grow your business. That's a really good point because it's like immediately when you say that, I'm like, uh, one of the things that really frightens me and probably by virtue of frightening me, probably makes the listeners also frightened as well. But I'm terrified of being called like unprofessional by like a senior psychologist, like it's so unprofessional, it's so unethical, that kind of thing. And I'm just like, oh, like that hurts a lot. Like, what do you actually do if you join a group practice and you've got a meanie for a practice owner? Um, Leave. I think your practice owners are also real people. Um, One of the highlights of my career ever, and if she ever hears this, she'll know, um, is, is my very own supervisor when I was an early career psychologist, when I was 23 years old and just finished my master's and I was working in public service and branching out into private. She was doing my supervision and she joined my practice when we established. Wow. Cool. She was, she said, I'm really proud of you. And so I'm going to come because I know it'll be great. Oh, that's so sweet. I know. I almost cried. Um, And I think that, you know, you 
we're real people. She's a real person. I know that she'll wear jeans on weekends. I know that she's, you know, this normal human in every other way. These are just normal people. So sometimes we're all unprofessional and sometimes we're all a little crazy or tired or disenfranchised or bored. (laughs) And I think that those are really also important things that we model. Um, As a business owner, it's okay to take time off. If you have to go and get a root canal, go and get a root canal because you need it. It's important. Um, But also they show up. And just because it's a hard day doesn't mean that you don't show up. And when you show up, you you there and and we try to establish a culture where when it's hard in the morning and you come, you're actually smiling by the end of the day. That's what we're looking for. So um, if you have a meanie as somebody who's going to be awful to you, then is that the appropriate fit for you? Do you need to leave and go somewhere where they're going to say, oh my gosh, you're having a tough day. What do you need? Yeah, I guess like... um... It's just like, I guess there's just no place for like workplace bullying. Like if you're encountering like a bully, whether it be the practice owner or a colleague, really consider whether that's the workplace for you. Absolutely. And advocate strongly and seek support from your supervisors to do so. You know, one of the things that um, I've unfortunately heard about is when people have become unwell or needed time off or whatever, reducing for salaried positions, this is uh, reducing admin time or saying, oh, sorry, you need to see six or seven clients today because, you know, the business model, blah, blah, blah. The business is not the individual's responsibility. The business is my responsibility as the owner. So it's not up to the early career psych to fix their problems. You know, if it's, financial, it's financial. If you need a sick day, you take it. You're entitled to them. They're planned for. There's it's a salaried position. You take them. That's amazing. I'm so glad you said that, that it's not the responsibility of the early career psych. The business is not the responsibility of the early career psych. Because I have seen stuff being like my practice owner says that um I need to get more referrals. And it's like, that's the business. That's not your job. That's actually the business who needs to meet with GPs and do like the marketing and stuff. Absolutely. I mean, of course, if you work, you might want to do that. And don't get me wrong. We have staff who do that for my team too. Their job is to go out and market. Their job is to do those things. The job of the psychologist might be sometimes to go out with them and I guess explain what they do, but you should be paid for your time. Admin is also part of the time. And if you're at work, you're at work and that's okay. So I guess like maybe that comes back to the conversations then because like an early career psych might be like, why the hell am I being asked to do this? But maybe like they actually need to have a conversation with the practice owner and better understand where they're coming from and be like, oh, no, no, it's actually part of this role and your role is this and it helps you in this way and it helps us in this way. Um, Do you think that would be uh, the right way to go about it? Yeah. And when we first opened our practice, we had a number of the clinical psychs. We call them our roadshow. We'd go around to the GPs and we'd introduce ourselves. And largely that's because the GPs like to know who they're referring to. They want to establish that relationship and they want to establish that trust with the practice, but also the individuals. And if you have something unique that you're offering, you know, when we had our, for example, our social worker join our team who did does a very different work than what we do as psychologists on our team so far. Um, then he also had to go around and have those conversations and explain what it is that he did. When we set up our group programs, 
we had to go and tell the GPs that this is how to refer to a group program in the community because they genuinely have no idea. Okay, that's really cool. I feel I feel uplifted now. So hopefully the listener does too. <laughs> I'm just trying to be a proxy, really. Nicole, I think I think this is kind of like on the on the verge of wrapping up, but I wanted to check in. Did you have anything that we haven't covered so far that you are just pining to tell us about what we should know? No, I don't think so. I think that we just wanted to tell the listeners to remember that that this is a wonderful time in your life and you have all the options. And it's about choosing what's going to work for you. And it's not about taking a job or any job or whatever. It has to really work for you. It has to sit really well. It has to resonate. And you have to be really proud of it at the end of the day. And I'm sure that if you follow your gut, then you'll make really wonderful decisions. And there's an awful lot of work out there, guys, and you're just going to do great. Oh, that's so sweet. Thank you, Nicole. I I really appreciate it. That's such a nice uh, heartwarming ending as well. And I really appreciate your time today. I know that practice owners, like you guys aren't rolling around in free time. Um, So I really appreciate your time and expertise. And thank you for your practical insights and advice. And just for anybody who's interested in finding out more about your practice, where could they find you online? Uh, Yeah. So we talked about how we could find Google earlier. So I'm there as well. So Nicole Withers and I'm director of wellness on the lane in Werribee, Victoria. So LinkedIn or um, Google. Yeah. And I'll post the link to that in the show notes as well. Um, So again, thank you, Nicole, and I hope you take care. Thank you so much, Bronwyn. Thanks for listening to Mental Work, the podcast for early career mental health professionals. If you're loving the show and don't want to miss an episode, press subscribe on your podcast listening app. And if you enjoyed this episode or any of our previous ones, leave us a rating and review on iTunes and Spotify. What topics would you enjoy hearing us talk about on the show? We'd love to hear from you. Email us your suggestions at mentalworkpodcast at gmail.com. Have a good one and see you next time.